are so worthy of our praise. Worthy is your name. Amen. You may be seated. We all feel like the world is not what it should be, and we are not what we should be. That's because a God of love and power created this world to reflect his goodness, glory, and beauty. He brought humanity into being to be his companions and to partner with him in extending the goodness of his reign, stewarding his world to greater levels of wonder and praise. Under the reign of God, all things flourish, and humans cooperate with God for his glory and the life of the world. But have we lived up to that purpose? Sadly, no. We chose to assert our own wishes onto God's world. We rejected his reign in favor of ruling ourselves. But when the reign of God is pushed out, the reign of death and hell moves in. To restore his reign to the world, God must do something about human evil. He will have to judge large-scale evils like genocide and slavery, as well as the pride, greed, and apathy that we all have contributed. Only through God's judgment can hell be banished and the world put right. But how can human evil be judged without humans suffering the judgment? On our own, we can't avoid it. But out of his generous grace, God has done what we could not do. He became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could be rescued and restored to our purpose. Jesus did this by living the life of servanthood and love that we were designed to live. And when Jesus gave his life on the cross, God poured on him the judgment for our evil so that we could be made right with God. Then, at the resurrection of Jesus, the return of God's reign began and the power for a new way of life was unleashed by his spirit. What does that mean for us? It means that all people can now turn away from self-rule and be restored to God and to their purpose. By trusting in the work of Jesus, we receive forgiveness and join with local communities of God's people committed to living for the glory of God and the life of the world. Together we practice the way of God's kingdom and announce the good news of His grace to everyone we know until the day when He completes His work and all His people are resurrected into the life of God's restored world. Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You can find it on page 987 in the Red Bibles under your chair. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, 
There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. I'm going to move some objects off the pulpit real fast. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Happy to be worshiping with you this morning. So that video you just saw, if you were not here over the, the summer, that was a video that was made for our Gospel in Life series that we had done over the summer. And the reason why we're showing it this morning is because the, the gospel is what we're going to be talking about. We're starting our, our Recalibrate series for this year. This is something we started doing in 2019, where we just sort of begin the year by, by recalibrating, by spending some time just sort of retuning ourselves to what's, what's most important to our Christian lives. So, so we at Trinity Community, we center our lives around four values— If we're doing this right, these values shouldn't be just distinct to us, something that sort of makes us unique from the rest of of Christianity globally. If we're doing this right, then these values should be shared across all of Christianity. I think they are. We we center our our life around gospel, worship, community, and mission. If you took a a membership course relatively recently, you're probably familiar with this symbol up here. What you'll notice is that for us here at Trinity, gospel, worship, and community, and mission, these aren't just sort of all— you know, core values that are otherwise on equal plane. What we believe is that the, the major movements of the Christian life in, into worship, into community, into mission, these actually emerge out of the gospel. That the gospel is sort of the core of the core, right? It is, it is at the very center of the Christian faith. Everything that we are, we are because of what God has done in Christ. Everything that we do, we do because of what God has done in Christ. That's really what the, what the gospel is. It's the news of Christ. Everything, that, everything about being a Christian emerges out of that core event, out of that core development, out of that core belief. And so that's why you know, you'll, you'll notice as a congregation we try to do things to sort of reorient ourselves around the core of the core, right? So we did the Gospel in Life series, obviously, but then also many of our community groups are spending some time reading through the book Gospel Fluency, which I, I hope has been helpful, but then also just on a week-to-week basis, before we take communion, someone gets up and announces the gospel to, to us. Uh, part of the reason that we do that is very practical. Not every passage of the Bible is about the gospel, but we believe that the, the gospel should be preached every week. And so when the preacher's up preaching a, a passage that, that isn't really necessarily about the gospel, we still know that every week we're going to receive it. We're going to hear it from somebody. And so that's why before communion every week we announce the gospel, because it is the core of the core. 
And so as we recalibrate, as we recenter, as we retune, we would be off course if we were doing it to anything but the gospel. All right, so this morning I want to talk about what the gospel is, but what I'll be doing as well is sort of discussing where obedience to Jesus fits into uh, the gospel. This year we'll be <coughs> focusing a lot of our energies around what we, what's often called discipleship, which is really just the act of encouraging each other toward the way of Jesus. But oftentimes following Jesus, obeying Jesus, sort of feels like this uncomfortable add-on to the grace of, of, of Christ. And it's hard to, sometimes for us to see how, how actually obedience to Christ is, is, is sort of the, the flowering of, of the gospel of grace. So my hope is that through, through this morning's teaching we'll be able to kind of get a, bit, a better picture of that. So what is the gospel? I want to come at this a little bit differently today. Over, over our Advent series we spent a lot of time in the prophets. So let's start today, spending a lot of time in the prophets. So we, we saw over the Advent series how, how the concept of Messiah sort of developed in the writings of the prophets, but there's another concept that was being developed right alongside of it. Another concept, aside from Messiah, that was being developed right alongside, um, right alongside it in the prophets. It's the concept of the day. The day. The day of the Lord, it's sometimes called. Paul, in our passage, mentions it. I'll read the verse. It's in verse 2. If you're in your Bibles again, like Marsha said, it's page 987. Paul writes this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he mentions the day of the Lord. And it's, it'd be very easy for us to just sort of be, be reading through the passage, especially if we've grown up in a Christian context and we're, we're familiar with, with this idea that, that Jesus will come to, to set the world right. We say, oh, the day of the Lord, right? It comes like a thief in the night. That's a quote from Jesus. I got this. I got, I got the whole concept. And we would miss a lot if we didn't spend a little bit of time on the phrase, the day of the Lord. So for the better part of the sermon... This is what today's going to kind of look like. For the better part of the sermon, about the first half, I'll just be talking about the day of the Lord. Just kind of walking through kind of how that develops over the course of, of the scriptures. And then we'll return to this passage here in Paul, and we'll see sort of how that, yeah, for me at least, it makes this passage just really stand out, and it's, it's really very powerful what we see. So, the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? It shows up all over the scriptures, and, and fundamentally it has to do with the judgment of God. Right, which of course, judgment is a word that that carries a number of really bad connotations and kind of bad images for us. Like we, when we, when we think about judgment, we often think of dudes on street corners wearing those A-frame signs and like shouting down pedestrians. It's not a lot of good connotations that we that we have associated with the word judgment, and a lot of that is, is really just because we've we've allowed a caricature to stand in for the reality. We've we've been, you know, sometimes we get exposed to to offensive but very vocal minorities, uh, you know, minority positions through whatever. It makes great television, right? <laughs> you know, folks, you know, with that view of, of judgment. But really, it's, it's a caricature of a very deep biblical concept. I'm not saying that it's, it's a concept that will be widely likable to many in our culture, but certainly what many of us have been exposed to is just a caricature. Here's how I think it's, it's most useful to think of God's judgment. God's judgment is whenever he steps in to set things right. God's judgment is when he steps in to set things right. Literally, bring about justice. Bring about justice. That's what the day of the Lord was all about. It's the day of God's judgment. It's the day of God doing something, stepping in to set things right. And what's interesting is that in the early stages of the Bible, it, it doesn't refer to some like final, ultimate judgment. It, it does later on. 
But as the term was, was getting developed, it actually didn't refer to that. It didn't refer to this like final ultimate judgment. It, 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 in fact, there would, be, there would be multiple days of the Lord throughout the scriptures, right? Multiple times where God does something within history to set things right, where God steps in to bring about justice. So that's what the day of the Lord kind of refers to. So for instance, what, 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 you know, where the phrase probably originated was very early on, very early on, when the Israelites were, were languishing under slavery and oppression in Egypt, God stepped in. He stepped into history to set things right. So what did he do? He he rescued the Israelites out from from under slavery. But as he was preparing them for what we call the Passover, he tells them every year what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to uh, practice a feast. And the reason why is so that they remember, so that they remember the way that God brought about justice. And when God tells them to do that, he says, practice this feast that you will remember this day so that you will remember the day when the Lord saved you, when the Lord rescued you. And so that, that's likely actually where, where the, the concept sort of originated, where the Lord stepped in to bring about justice. He stepped in to, bring, to set things right, to liberate Israel. It was, it was a day of the Lord. And so you've got to imagine that after years upon years of practicing the Passover and, and coming together to remember the day, this concept of the day of the Lord, what, what, what he did would get bigger and bigger in the minds of, of Israelites. It would get bigger and bigger and develop, and suddenly the prophets get a hold of it, you know, more than 1,000, 1,500 years later, and, and the term has developed quite a bit to the point where, where later on, as the nations of Assyria and Babylon are rising, they're taking people into exile, right? The Israelites start praying for another day of the Lord. They say, God, bring about another day of the Lord, set things right again against Babylon and Assyria. And the prophets, they, the, these, these early preachers of Israel, they, they, they start to, to preach. And they say, you ought to hesitate right now before you ask for a day of the Lord. You should hesitate a little bit right now before you ask God to set things right. Because there will be another day of the Lord. But it won't be for you. It will be against you. And the reason why is because, as, as we've talked about a lot in the Advent series, Israel had compromised in their worship. They had compromised for the sake of the poor, right? And so these prophets start preaching. They start saying, you don't want the day of the Lord. God setting things right, God bringing about justice, in this case, is not going to go in your favor. So you get writings like this. this. is from the prophet Amos. He was a, what they call a pre-exilic prophet. So he was before the, the, the exile. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into a house and leaned his hand against a wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And speaking from the voice of God, I hate, despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I won't listen. And then he, he tells them what they ought to do if they want to avoid God setting things right. They ought to set things right. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Essentially what he's saying is that God is going to act for justice, but the justice that needs to be done is against those who call themselves God's people. 
And so another day of the Lord does happen. God does once again step in to set things right, and Israel goes into exile. So this concept sort of starts to develop, right? Where the day of the Lord just means these moments when God steps in to set the world right. So it's kind of dismal from that perspective. In fact, in, in most of the writings of the prophets, the day of the Lord is spoken of as a reason to be afraid. But the idea starts to expand. And the prophets start to talk about the day of the Lord in ways that, that become sort of vague. It becomes unclear whether they're talking about an immediate historical event or whether they're actually talking about something in the very far future. It begins to be unclear whether they're talking about something that's right on top of us or if they're talking about a final, ultimate day of the Lord, an ultimate judgment. And of course, most of the time when this is talked about, it's still as a reason to fear. And and why would that be? Well, because if God is going to ultimately set things right, that's bad news for us who have helped make things wrong, right? If he's going to set the world right and expel anything that would, that would move it off the course of his, of his rule, that's bad news for humanity. It means that we may not be able to be a part of the world set right unless we could be set right. But here's what's curious. A couple of the prophets, they, they start talking about this day of the Lord and, and it appears to be this ultimate day of the Lord. And they do preach about it as a reason to fear, but then also they start preaching about it as a reason to hope. How could that work? Because what does that really mean? A world set right? Well, for those of us who would not fit in in a world set right, it's bad news. But what if God is going to set things right in a way that it will actually make it possible for people to be a part of that new creation? What if the day of the Lord won't just set the world right, but might actually set us right, too. So Isaiah writes this passage. I'm gonna, it, it'll be on the screen as well. You won't he, see the word day of the Lord in this passage. It's the beginning of chapter 2. The, the word, if you're actually looking for the phrase, it shows up a little later in the passage, but it's all one continuous idea. So it is about the day of the Lord. So it's, Isaiah writes this. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. So it's this this uh, poetic imagery of, of sort of the, the house of the Lord, the, the place of worship, the worship of God taking precedence over all other competitors. It shall be established at the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So that the peoples of, of, of the earth, all these peoples flowing in to worship God and many peoples shall come and they'll say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he might teach us his ways and that we might walk in his paths. It's this incredible moment where where Isaiah is, is poetically describing people from all sorts of nations coming to the house of the Lord to worship the real God. And what are they asking for? They're not just asking, change the world. They're saying, change me. Teach me your ways. Make me like you. Teach me the way of the Lord so that I could walk in his paths, so that I could be different, so that I could be changed, to know what I was made to be, 
And Isaiah says this, For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And clearly, this is not just some dusty tome of antiquated rules. He's talking about the way life was meant to be lived. Out of Zion will go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem And he will judge. He will bring justice between nations. He'll decide disputes. And they will beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So these are images of peace. That the way of the Lord goes out. That not just the world is set right, but people start to be set right. And peace. Shalom, flourishing life as it was meant to be lived, overtakes the globe. Another preacher in Israel, Joel, writes this about the day of the Lord. I'll show you wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is, if you remember from our sermon on Matthew 24, these are, these are sort of poetic, cataclysmic images of of reversal of God just turning the tables on, on all the powers of the world. So this is very much day of the Lord, very scary, right? But then he adds this line, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Suddenly the day of the Lord is developing. The prophets want us to know that when, the, when God sets the world right, he's going to do it in a way that will make it possible for people to be saved. He's going to do it that won't just destroy all, but actually save many. The prophets start to remind God's people that God is faithful, that he isn't going to stop being faithful, that he hasn't abandoned us, and he's not going to start. He will not stop being merciful, but he will make a way so that many, as many as call on his name, will be part of this world set right. It's this amazing development when you take it with with all, all the rest of these writings of the prophets, because suddenly the day of the Lord becomes good again. The day of the Lord becomes good again. It becomes like it was on the day when the Lord rescued his people in the ancient past. It becomes like it did when he delivered them across the waters. It becomes like it did when he acted for their sake in a way that they never could have affected themselves. It becomes like it was when they realized that God had done everything necessary to set them apart as his people. That he had drawn them into relationship with him for his glory and the life of the world. The prophets are introducing this whole new perspective that, yes, when God sets the world right, that, that's a frightful thing for some but it also could be good news for as many as will call on his name. He isn't just setting the world right. He's setting us right somehow, too. But how could that be? Let's move to today's passage. Today we're in a letter written by one of the earliest missionaries of the church, Paul. It's the first of two letters he sent to the believers in the Greek city of Thessalonica. It's likely very, uh, one of his, his very earliest letters as well. So those of you who are familiar with the letter uh, will know that, that today's passage is from kind of a controversial section, right? So the back end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, in case you're unfamiliar with, with the letters to the Thessalonians, 
the, the back half of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 are all part of what theologians would, would call eschatology, which just means the, the study of the last things, the theology of the last things. Uh, so shorthand would be just, it's end times stuff. And so, especially in recent years, in the past century, a number of folks have, have gone to this passage to, to sort of mine it for, for, you know, what it can contribute to understanding the end times, and they've come back with, with conflicting ways of reading the text. And so that's, that's created a lot of controversy, especially in, in, within evangelicalism in, in the past hundred years. And so I, I'm only bringing this up to say that I'm not going to get into it at all this morning. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about it at all. And it's, it is not because I don't think it's important. I think it is. It's just not very relevant to what I'm after this morning. But I, I also want you to know that if this is something that's on your mind, please don't hesitate to, to talk if you can't if we, if you know, if we're kind of ships passing in the night after the service, then then send an email or or something because I, you know, of course we would love to talk to you about these passages and, you know, would love to hear your perspective and, and hopefully I can be helpful too. But I'm just not going to talk about it during the sermon. So I just wanted to mention that that I'm not closing the door on the topic. I just it's not it's not on the table for today. So today's text feels pretty appropriate, especially as we're coming out of the Advent season. We just spent some time uh, remembering the first coming of Christ, the first time that God came to dwell with us. The, the, it's, it's also the time when God began to set the world right. And today's passage is about the second Advent. It's about the second time where God will come to dwell with us, and this time it will be forever, to finish the work of setting the world right. So here's what I want us to listen out for. What we're going to see is that in light of what Christ has done, Paul's going to take this concept of the day of the Lord, and he's going to do something really interesting with it. First, here's what he says. He says that in light of Christ, we know that the day is coming. Let's reread verses 1 through 3. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have, that should be brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a gender-neutral term as well. You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there's peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. So here's what ra- what's radical about what Paul just did here. He just, you heard him mention the day of the Lord, but suddenly he's used the phrase to refer to Christ. The day of the Lord is when Christ will return to set the world right. So th- throughout the scriptures, there are a lot of phrases used to, to refer to the world set right. It might be, New Jerusalem in one place, it might be the new creation in another place, and these are all terms to describe the world put right. Jesus has a term for the very same thing, the kingdom of God. That Jesus comes preaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's on top of us, right? It's imminent. It's within arm's reach. It's right at the door. So why would Jesus say that the kingdom of God, that the world put right, is right upon us? Well, we end up seeing that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, just seems to kind of follow Jesus around, right? That wherever he goes, the world is put right. When he is nearby, diseases are leaving people. Folks are being liberated from dark powers. God's way is being taught Good news is preached. The vulnerable and the poor are dignified. Those who have been written off are loved. Wherever Jesus went, you caught a a glimpse of the world put right. The kingdom of God put on display. Jesus came to bring about the day of the Lord. Jesus came to set the world right. And the reason that he could do that, the reason why he could bring the kingdom was because 
He was the king. But the way that he would do it, the way that he would really bring about God's rule in the world was through his death. So Jesus' ministry, it culminated in the moment when he was mounted on a Roman crossbeam and publicly executed. It would have been something that made no sense to those looking on. It would not have looked like the kingdom of God. It would have looked like incredible injustice. Not God bringing justice. It would have looked like injustice. And yet without that moment, the world could never be truly set right. And here's why. Because by Christ's death on the cross, people can be forgiven. Through his death on the cross, people can be put right with God. Because of what Jesus did, the news that God was remaking all things did not have to be bad news because it didn't have to exclude people. Instead, in in light of Christ, people could be set right too. They could be forgiven. They could be made part of the family of God, not by virtue of what they did, not because they put themselves right first, but because in the cross of Christ, God declares that they're righteous. God says, they are made right with me. So then all of a sudden, the the welcome of God goes out to people who never thought they could be included. The welcome of God goes out to people who, who thought that God had long written them off, to people who thought that there was no way God would want anything to do with them. The welcome of God goes out to people fatigued with spirituality and religion, but also to people who are high on their own piety, who suddenly realize that it didn't amount to anything. Suddenly, in Christ, the whole human host discovers that we are not abandoned, that we are not forgotten, that God has not been silent, that despair is not our only option, that history is not directionless, that hope is not lost, but that in Christ, the creator and sustainer of all things loves us with an overwhelming ferocity and with no strings attached. In the, cro- in the cross, the process of setting things right begins because people begin to be put right. And that's good news. Now, the early Christians would not have believed this news about the cross if Jesus had stayed dead. They would not have believed this news of the cross if Jesus had stayed dead. But the claim of the New Testament writers is that that tomb was left empty. The claim of the New Testament writers is that Jesus not only left an empty tomb, but that he appeared physically and bodily to his followers afterward and to many other people. And they aren't claiming that as just sort of like a cool miracle that's like more or less disconnected from the rest of their thought, right? It's not just like, oh, and then also this, but here's the really important thing. You know, instead... The, the resurrection of Jesus becomes the foundation. It becomes the ground out of which all Christian thought starts to grow. The bodily resurrection of Christ becomes the thing on which Christian faith is predicated. So, for instance, Paul looks at the resurrected Jesus, and what he sees is a promise. He sees a promise in the resurrection of Jesus. He sees a proof that the grace of God has been radically made available in Christ. If Christ had stayed dead, there'd be no reason to believe that. But with him alive, there's this promise. It's a promise that the ultimate day of the Lord really is going to come. 
the world really will be set right. And all things will be made new, new as the resurrected body of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come. But because of the cross, it's going to be good news to those relying on Christ to save them. So here's what Paul says later on in this passage. I'm skipping to verses 8 through 10. Paul writes this. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why do we have hope of salvation? Because God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, whether we have already died or are still alive, we will, we might live with him. And through the cross of Christ, all things are being made new and people are being Included. In light of Christ, the dread of the day of the Lord becomes hope. It becomes comfort. Because in Jesus, salvation is coming to undeserving people, to anyone who will call on the name of the Lord. So here's where things get interesting. Not that they're already not interesting. They've been interesting. Here's another reason they're interesting. So here, what we're going to see is, is that, like, the connection between the gospel and obedience to Jesus starts to become clear. In the passage. So, what we believe as Christians is that in the resurrection of Christ, the power of the new creation actually made its way into this world. That when Jesus rose, that was our first glimpse of the new creation. Jesus did not, he was not resurrected into a body like our own, but into a restored body. He is. He is the beginning of the new creation. It's through him that the new creation is coming. And so in the resurrection, there's suddenly the new creation and the old creation become a Venn diagram. There's been a crossover, and, and it's in the body of Christ. And so, which is why Paul can now do something very interesting in this passage. Because Christians are now invited to live by the power of the resurrection. And so here's what he says. He says, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you, the day of of Christ's return. You're not in darkness so that that day would surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let's keep awake. Be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. And then he goes into to verse 8, which we just read, for since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate. And it goes on. So what Paul tells us is not just that in light of Christ we see the day coming, but that in this very real sense, in light of Christ, the day is here. It's not just that the day is coming, the day is here. He does this kind of playful metaphor, right? So he's talking about the day of the Lord. He calls the followers of Jesus, those who are relying on Christ for salvation, he calls them children of the light, but then he calls them children of the day. So he's, it's, he's kind of playing with this idea of, of, the, of the day of the Lord. It's this playful thing that he's, he's doing. Where No, no, you're children of the day. You're children of the day of the Lord. What does he mean by that? In other words, in his grace, God is setting people apart for a world set right. God is setting people apart for a world set right. He's setting people apart for his kingdom so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Anyone who relies on Christ and gives him their allegiance will be part of the new world that has already broken in. And so Paul invites us to live as though the day is here. So discipleship, following the way of Jesus, is sort of like this. So one of the things that I, I'm not a morning person at all, but the, the thing that can get me out of bed 
It's fishing. I love fishing. So there is something about early mornings. I'll give you morning people that. There is something about waking up very, very early and, and oftentimes, you know, getting in the car with my rods and, and going to a lake. But even before that, where I'm, I'm, I'm up and the windows are dark and it still has that kind of like morning chill, there is something about it. And I think the reason why is that we, when we're awake, everything outside is dark, most people are asleep, and yet there's sort of this experience of having like this privileged knowledge that the day has begun. And, and just by the simple fact of looking at a clock. In this metaphor, the clock is the resurrection. So you can look at the clock, and as Christians, we, we, we're in this situation where, where it's morning, it's still dark outside, to our senses, it's night. The windows are dark, it's cold, I want to go back to bed. And yet, I can look at the clock and realize that despite the fact that it's dark outside, it actually isn't night anymore. The clock tells me that the day is starting. So that's where, where Paul goes with this. Is he, he tells us, don't go back to bed. Don't go back to bed. He's, he, when he talks about sobriety and drunkenness, he's not just like tangentially, tangentially just sort of being like, oh yeah, the day of the Lord. Then also, by the way, guys, uh, drink in moderation. Like It's not a disconnected thing. What he's saying is no one starts drinking at 5 a.m right? Don't do the things of the night. It's not night anymore. Don't go back to bed. Don't start drinking at 5 a.m. It's dark out, but the clock tells us it's morning. Live like it's the day, because the dawn is going to start soon, and if you're in bed, you're going to fall asleep, and you're going to miss it. If you're living by the way of night, you're going to stay asleep and you're going to miss the dawn. Wake up. Stay awake. For you who have been sleeping through part of the sermon, this is a kind of a convenient thing. I don't often get to do this. You know? <laughs> it's usually looked down upon for a preacher to be like, hey, over here. But I can this morning, out of context, of course. But anyway, wake up. Wake up. Don't go back to sleep. So this puts a totally new spin on what it means to follow Jesus. We realize that when when we learn to follow the way of Jesus, we are actually preparing for life in God's kingdom. Discipleship, following Jesus, is preparation for the world set right. So let's say you know that very soon you're going to be living in a, in a distant country and you're going to be there for a very long time, potentially the rest of your life, right? So right now you're still in the United States, but you know that you're going to go to a place with entirely new customs, entirely new habits of life, and entirely new language. What do you start doing? You start learning. In fact, it'd be very, very smart to start taking on some of those habits of life. It'd be very smart to start learning some of the customs, especially the language. Start learning the language. Paul is saying that in Christ, the world is going to be set right, so learn the language. Learn the customs, by which he means follow Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of the new creation. It's the way of the world set right. And if I can push the analogy a little bit longer, let's say you decide that you're going to learn this language so completely that you would start speaking it in public here. It'd be very awkward, 
communication at times would be very, very difficult. But not because everyone in our but but not because everyone in our country. Sorry, let me redo that sentence, which apparently has a typo that's going to shipwreck me right now. It would be very awkward and very difficult. But the only reason why is because you're not yet at the country you're going to. Learning to speak the language now, learning the habits of life now would be very awkward and very difficult, but only because you're not yet in the country you're going to. But we aren't living by, by the way of the world as it is, but by the way of the world as it will be. We are living by the light because the dawn is breaking. So Paul's inviting us to entirely reimagine obedience to Christ. He's inviting us to wake up. In light of Christ, the day is coming. In light of Christ, the day is here. So live in the light of Christ. Paul ends the section with this this phrase, therefore encourage each other and build one another up just as you are doing. So like I said, I'm not a morning person. In fact, I am at my most productive, like my, my period of highest productivity starts at like 4 p.m., which is not convenient for family life. But there was this brief period where I became sort of a morning person, and it's because a friend of mine here in the, in the congregation had invited me to work out with him occasionally at, at very wee hours of the morning. And so I would get up at 5.30 in the morning to, to work out, and eventually I gave up. But the point is that without him, without him helping to keep me awake, without knowing that if I didn't get out of bed, a text was going to come to me from him, Without knowing that, I would have just rolled over in bed. Because I've tried to get up early to work out, and it just never happens. It just, it just is an impossibility. So, but knowing that he was going to text me, and even just, the, just knowing that I wasn't going to be working out alone, knowing that I was going to be doing it with, with this friend, that means very much to me, that became a motivator. So Paul ends this section here saying, encourage each other. Build one another up. If you're left to yourself, you're going to roll over in bed and go back to sleep. And you're going to miss the dawn. You need each other. You have to encourage each other. So discipleship, in this way, becomes kind of like pinching each other. Keeping each other awake. You know, so those of you who have sort of a sadistic streak, maybe that's it. I don't know. So anyway, it becomes this act of waking each other up. Help each other to stay awake. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. We desperately need each other. We need each other to, to give comfort. We need each other to, to have enough visibility on our life that, that we can actually say, brother, sister, I think you're in sin. I think you're living by the night. In this way, can I help you live by the light of day? We, we need each other because faith is not just, it, it's, it's not sensational. Following Jesus is not like a sensational kind of titillating experience most of the time. Sometimes it is. But most of the time, it's just a day-to-day showing up. And in our culture, where value is all about sensationalism, we need help to see the beauty of what it is to follow Jesus. And we're going to find that in each other. We're not going to find that on YouTube. We're not going to find that 
just listening to sermons on our own, sermon audio, but, but never really having interaction with the people of God. We find it with each other. Christ, Christ's body is his people. You are not yourself when you are by yourself, as one pastor said. So discipleship is the way we participate in the day. But we will not stay awake if we don't stand with each other. We need to help each other stay awake. So as we start 2020, you know, I, I can tell you right now that the, the, the main thing on, on the minds of the elders right now is discipleship. You know, and I can say, just as, as Paul is saying, encourage each other, build one another up, just as you are doing. Discipleship isn't on the minds of the elders because it's not happening at all in our midst. But it's on our minds because we desire it to happen more and more and more. For there to be, for, for us to sort of feel like we have been skilled up. That, that we kind of know what it looks like to pour into another's life. That we know what it is to mine the scriptures, not just for information, but for transformation. And so for 2020, we're going to bang this drum a lot. Because I think it's, we, we, we feel that this is where the Spirit is leading us. And so we begin this today with the news that, that in Christ, this is the gospel, in Christ, the dawn is breaking. And so let's help each other stay awake. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Lord, that that the day of the Lord will come. That in the resurrected Christ, we have that guarantee. We thank you, God, that, that it does not have to catch us by surprise. But that because of what you have accomplished in Christ, we can wake up and await the dawn with expectation and hope because it is coming soon. Lord, come quickly. God, come quickly. In the meantime, teach us your ways. Ground us even more in our identity in Christ, an identity we are given by grace, not by works. And God, make all things new. Make all things new. Set us right, set the world right.